0: Welcome to F is for Film. The film is Kapai Mahu, and the guests are Joe Wilson and Kimale Moana. And I'm happy to have these guys here to talk about the film and all the things that it means, all the wonderful things that it explores and the beautiful animation that we experience in this film. But let's start uh, by talking about uh, the path to this moment. Kimale Moana, could you talk about your your journey as an artist, as a creative, and what brought you to this project?
1: My journey started when I was just learning to write. And my grandmother put her hand over mine and told me that I needed to learn and study in school and be as smart as I could because one day I was going to be a teacher. And that led to a life of over 30 years now, of some sort of teaching or transmitting something that I was given to take care of, that I was given to perpetuate and, and, and to uphold and uplift. And um, as early as you know having uh, been in school and, and being given leadership roles when I graduated, um, being an assistant to my former teachers, and continuing on after college to teach in the community, to teach K through 12. And so now with that um, as a part of my, my journey, now I get to turn around and bring certain kinds of understandings and things that I feel are important in the format of storytelling via animation and other, you know, other, uh, film styles and thanks to my colleagues, uh, Dr. Dean Hamer and Joe Wilson, you know, I get to do that now.
0: And Joe, what about your journey?
2: Well, first of all, Stephen, thank you so much for having us today. It's a great honor to be on your program and to share these, you know, really important stories from Hawaii with you and your audience. So, you know, my story is actually similar in some ways to Hina, and our collaboration, I think, begins in and of all places, my small conservative hometown in the hills of western Pennsylvania, a town called Oil City, where I was born and raised and, you know, grew up in a very conservative environment as a person who happens to be gay, and so experienced all of the kind of social kind of pressures that come with that. I went on to have a life in the field of human rights and ended up marrying someone named Dean Hamer, who is now my partner in life and filmmaking. And so our journey really with filmmaking and what introduced us to Hina was what happened when Dean and I got married. And we put, like a lot of people do, the announcement to the wedding in the local newspaper where you're from. I did that in Oil City, Pennsylvania. And unfortunately, a huge negative response erupted in the local paper at the mere presence or visibility of a gay couple in a conservative environment. And when was this, by the way? So that happened back in 2004. And so when that happened and that kind of controversy erupted, Dean and I received the letter from the mother of a teenager in that small town who wrote to me then living in Washington, DC and said, I have a son who's in 10th grade at the local high school and he's being bullied and tortured, you know, horribly. I don't know what to do. I don't know any gay people. Can you help? (laughs) I saw your picture in the paper. Can you help? So Dean and I, you know, kind of jumped in our car, took a camera with us and went back to that town to meet that family they were desperate to have their story shared so that their reality would be known and thus began a quest to change things for the better in that small town that became a documentary film called Out in the Silence that Dean and I then used as a tool for grassroots organizing all across the US that trip eventually brought us to Hawaii and in Hawaii we were introduced by someone in our mutual circles to Hina Le Moana Wangkalu and Hina, in sharing her story with us, you know, revealed a whole different way of thinking about these issues, what it means to be, you know, in a gender or sexual minority community, in a culture in which, you know, there's much broader understanding, acceptance and inclusion, as was the case in Hawaii prior to foreign, you know, intrusion here. (laughs) So Hina, you know, in sharing that story with us really also revealed that she was on a really exciting journey of her own as a community leader and advocate, but who happened to fall in love with somebody. And her journey was to get married as well. And so she invited us to kind of follow her on the journey she was on at that time. This was back in about 2012. And that journey turned into a movie called Kumuhina which was aired on PBS, and it kind of was an important effort, bringing such a story forward that we, again, used as a tool for community education and organizing and advocacy. And Hina's story really just, I think, inspired a lot of people, her willingness to share, you know, her very personal story and struggles, but also the story of Hawaii and why a Hawaiian perspective on these things is so important, not just here, but for others to learn about. And Hina, when she mentioned in her introduction, is now, you know, working in film and media to help tell even more stories, I think started there, right? Hina, our collaboration, she essentially, you know, even though she was in front of the lens at that time, she was really directing that film while Dean and I were behind the camera. She was leading us. To different stories and communities and ideas across Oahu and other parts of Hawaii to really share some important things. And I think she realized, as did we, that there was a lot of important work to do together. And so we joined forces with Hina as a full collaborative team to tell all kinds of different stories. You know, we made a movie about Tonga and Samoa and we're continuing to do more work here in Hawaii so I'll stop chattering but Hina, know that's kind of the essence I think we now are a, a full collaborative team on trying to lift stories you know from here there and everywhere to help enlighten
1: yes yes and I'm very thankful that we have the opportunity to work together without well without everything that's happened in the course of our walk in this life and for me Um, A very pivotal point in 2014 with the release of Kumuhina. You know it catapulted my ability and my reach into my community here and overseas. Um, It just thrust it into a totally different level and you know for whom um, much is given, much uh, is required to give back and so I believe in that.
2: Can I sing the praises of Hina a little very bit true. more, Stephen? Just one other interesting fact. Yes, please. To know. So Hina is also an artist across a number of different areas. So a teacher and you know, a cultural leader and activist too, but she's also a composer of Oli, or Hawaiian chant. And some of her chants have become really important in the Hawaiian pantheon, one of which recently won what's out here referred to as the Hawaiian Grammy Awards, the Na Hoku Hanohano Awards. And it's an oli that has now sung by people everywhere, kids, young and old alike, everywhere you go in Hawaii, because it speaks to the calling that many Hawaiians and those who support Hawaiian causes have felt to help protect sacred sites out here, primarily now the fight over Mauna Kea, which is under threat of construction of industrial development, yeah. But so Hina, Hina, she expresses her voice in all kinds of different ways, and film is only one of them. And speaking
0: of culture, let's talk about Hina, your, some of your upbringing and, and and some of the traditional Hawaiian beliefs. Where does that sit in current culture today? And what, how were how were you taught and brought up?
1: For many of us who are born and raised into Hawaiian families, um, in modern Hawaii, it's. Uh, an eclectic mix of all kinds of things, I would say. Some of our families held on to culture. Um, Even fewer than that held on to language. And that is such a dwindling number that right about now, um, I can safely identify one final stronghold of language that probably has less than 50 people on the island. It's the island of Ni'ihau. And Hawaiian is a first language. But into this next generation, I'm not sure what that's going to look like. And, you know, um, it is through my extended family from that island that I have any access and any claim to any kind of accomplishment or achievement. For without them, um, I would not have the capacity... To speak and to know things of my culture and my people that I have now, and I'm certainly not saying that that's a lot. It's just the you know the 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 surface of the ocean. There's so much that uh, remains to to engage upon, but to to your question. Many of our people um, were raised without language and culture. My mother is that generation that w- did not have the the benefit and the privilege of knowing language, culture and, and the ways of our Hawaiian life. And um, her I know my mom's journey is very very different. My grandparents were the generation that it, they were not allowed to speak Hawaiian because their parents were fluent in it but they required them to speak English. And many of them were, um, you know, physically reprimanded for speaking Hawaiian. And it was a practice in school that the teachers prevented you from speaking our language. And sadly enough, when you prevent the transmission of language, you prevent the transmission of not only culture and the physical practices and understandings of daily life, but you end up snuffing out and suffocating the very heart set and the mindset of a people so um i recognize this very clearly in today you know the things that i recognize from people who have a a native speaker background versus hawaiians who don't there are some times um, where the difference is um, it's absolutely apparent in the mind and the heart of the individual. Um, Hawaiians are, are um, you know, part of the larger family of Polynesians, uh, Tonga, Samoa, Tahiti, Rapanui, Nui, Aotearoa, and so many other islands spread across the Moana Nui, spread across the great Pacific Ocean. And, um, when we put our cultures next to each other, there are fundamental elements that mirror each other throughout the islands. And that's how I knew that was my verification that, you know, by pulling the the Ni'ihau understandings and and speaking Hawaiian language as a first language speaker mindset, um, you can easily establish that bridge between all the other islands. But to be a Hawaiian that does not have that background, it's a little bit more challenging.
0: And so what what led you to take on the expression of all the things you're talking about right now as an animated film?
2: So can I start with that, Hina? It's an interesting choice. I love it, but I want to know why. <laughs> so I'll I'll start at least intro the idea and then I think it leads to, to Hina's contributions here too. So when we were filming the documentary Hina, you know, we were traveling all over Honolulu and the island with Hina with our cameras, et cetera. And one time, you know, we were in Waikiki and Hina took us to this site where these four giant boulders are located. Prominent, you know, Waikiki obviously is a very prominent spot here on Oahu. You know, millions and millions of tourists walk up and down the beachside uh, annually and see this monument. And we had strolled by it before, too, and just thought, oh, there's four stones sitting there enclosed as like a little monument on the beach. But we didn't really think much about it and know much about it. And even when we went over to read the plaque, while there's a a basic etching of what the stones represent, the full story really is not known. And so that's the story that's told in the animation. It's the story of these four great beings that were said to have come from Tahiti to Hawaii, you know, hundreds of years ago and brought the healing arts to Hawaii. They were beloved by the people and upon their departure, the people placed these stones on Waikiki in their memory and to contain their mana or their spiritual power so that the people could forever draw on their great skills in healing. So when Hina told us the full story and we realized the significance of it in a Hawaii, in a world where people who are, you know, somewhere on the gender spectrum that is not on uh, either end of the binary, that they had a place in a, a land called Hawaii. And they were not just included, but they were seen as really important, you know, figures whose talents and contributions were to be revered. That just, you know, struck us so powerfully. and. It also really angered us because we realized that there are so many people whose lives could be helped by knowing this story, especially such a prominent monument. And I think, Hina, you yourself said, if only when you were growing up, you know, as a young Hawaiian who was down at that spot all the time, you know, would throw your towels on the stones, but you yourself didn't even know that important history of Hawaii. But if you did, your life might have been different. And that's the goal of this project, I think. You know, when Hina told us that story, we started doing research to find out why had this story been suppressed and hidden from people, from the Hawaiian people in particular, but also to all the people who are now here in Hawaii and who visit Hawaii. Why is this story being locked away? So we did a lot of research to uncover that. And our longer term project is about revealing all the problems related to how Hawaiian culture and history have been erased. But, you know, Hina led us then on a journey to say, let's lift this story up and tell it like it was likely told before foreigners arrived here. And that's the gift I think that she's talking about telling it in the Niihau language and visualizing it as much as we thought possible in a way that reflects that Hawaiian view of life in those times.
0: Yes, it's very beautiful. And, I, you know, one of the things that struck me was that it's told from the point of view of a child which i think is beautiful and perfect who made who made that decision
1: i don't think i can take the credit for that <laughs>
0: <laughs> but could you elaborate a bit
1: <laughs> um i'll i'll joe go ahead and 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 share a little bit before i chime in
2: yeah, we we were lucky. I mean, you know, for Hina driving this project as producer and director. I mean, anybody that works in film, you know, you know that nothing happens without, you know, significant collaborations with, you know, many different people and artists. And so we were lucky to come on and help Hina, you know, kind of build that team out. And then we were really lucky to find an artist named Daniel Sousa, who's an extraordinary animator, and he became our animation director. He's an islander who has done a lot of other important work in animation, kind of looking at history and mythology and and bringing such stories forward from a lot of different cultures. And he was really enthralled by this project and, and agreed to help us out. So we worked with him a lot. Hina helped, I think, really envision and sometimes even model. You know, we would film Hina doing different things in terms of like the ceremony in the um, in the animation, and she would she would you know help realize what what movement looked like, what what dance and hula looked like, what characters would look like, the colors, the palettes, everything. And then you know he he worked with us to realize that. But Hina, what are your thoughts on that?
1: Yes, I would say that um, you hit it on the spot and. You know, it's thanks to the artistry and expertise of Daniel Sousa uh, to help bring our story, to make it come to life. It's one thing to have people to know how to, you know, do the videography and record and, and to research the story. It's another thing to have a person to tell the story, especially if you're going to have it in a, uh, you know, a language other than English and someone proficient enough to do that but in the case of animation it's got to be a really um a really special kind of bond and marriage that that when collaborating you know we don't even have to talk too much but we share our ideas over the distance of space and time and we're communicating um, you know, electronically, and I am just absolutely floored by the the beauty, the texture of the colors, and when I think about something that just had had come into my life, um, soon to be two weeks now, and it it forever changed me. And that reality in, in real time, the color palette of the movie is that same color palette. There's all of these vivid and brilliant hues of of Tupper print colors that especially um in the Tupper prints that I love, they are earthy, they are earth red and orange, they are earth brown. Um, and I just realized that while we're here on this podcast, so it's truly phenomenal.
2: And to answer your question, Stephen, about mm-hmm. the young boy, the, the character who really is the thread that winds through the whole piece. I think we really have to credit Daniel, the animator, with that storytelling device because we, you know, Hina helped describe what at the very beginning of the film it might have looked like, the Hawaiian retinue that received the visitors when they arrived on the canoe. And we had a young person on the beach there welcoming them. But Daniel, the animator, realized that if we... If we viewed the film through the eyes of that young character at different times in Hawaii history, it would be a really great re- storytelling thread that an audience could relate to. And it certainly has turned out to be the thing that people talk about the most. It's, it, it was a beautiful decision that he made. And that's, that's the beauty of this collaboration. The simplicity of, of, of seeing things through the eyes of a child kind of gives you
0: the wonder, the beauty, the magic. You don't, and it also takes away, all other, other kind of cultural impositions that you, we've been talking about, all those layers are just not even there. and I think for me, it was just the first time I've ever seen that kind of expression of people who are not occupying what we what current culture considers a a, a standard binary sexuality as godlike it was it's revolutionary in a way, and it's actually quite startling in a a really positive way. What has been the reaction to the film? What have you gotten back? What's the feedback been from people in Hawaii and other places?
1: For me, I I gave sneak previews to a couple of um, classes in elementary school here in Hawaii, and they absolutely enjoyed it. So I can't wait for... It to be formally released here. Joe can tell you more about its international travel uh, and you know abroad, but um, for me, I always tell Dean and Joe that uh, with no disrespect to anywhere outside of Hawaii, for me, Hawaii is my mainland, it is my Pico, it is my foundation. Hawaii is that which I will, you know, live and give my life for. So what matters to me the most is its value here in, in my mainland, its, um, you know, its ability to to empower and uplift others and the the fact that my people would cherish it. And I hope that they would look favorable.
0: I have to say that the film, you know, Coming from the United States, we are, we, you know, the experience of cultural erasure that you're talking about in Hawaii is something that is basically everywhere from the Atlantic coast to Hawaii has happened to other cultures as well. So I think that people will respond to this in the same way for, I I took it that way, because I think of the fact that we live in a, in the mainland, we live in a place where three quarters of the states have Native American names, but there is no reverence for the actual culture that they came from. We don't have any sense of what they emerge, what those names emerge from. But somewhere underneath all of this, there is still a story and a valuable, beautiful story. So, yes, you know, I, I relate to it from that point of view. And uh, I think that there is so much that, that is revolutionary about this film in a great way. And I think it's going to do things for people both in Hawaii and in the world.
1: I, I would <laughs> dare to say that what you just said is something i'm absolutely clear about and that's why i make it a point in the work that i do now especially um here in my home my people here um always look to the land over there in the continent and always say the mainland when and they give no real um precedent to our homeland and thus all of their efforts, all of their, you know, their aspirations, all of their goals, and and their final outcomes, are always based in a place so far away. And when you really don't have any loyalties or any kind of obligations or duties, then it really changes the perspective. And for me, um, that will not ever be my reality. And for other Native people, I hope that they too will see the value in centering themselves from the land that they come from and then radiate out. And when it comes to telling our stories, the fact that they're on the continent, that you could have this abundance of places and and stories and names and nobody really care. Only the people... Whom come from there, they're the ones that care about it. But everyone else could care less. And that is because the general attitude that comes from the more encompassing um, mindset of a country that touts and and, 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 and takes pride in saying certain things about freedoms. But really, um, freedom and the perspective of where that freedom comes from and, and who, for whom is that freedom is something that I pay close attention to. So telling our story is our pathway to freedom. Telling our story and holding on to all that makes us who we are is meant to be to honor the legacy of that which will free us.
2: And that speaks to another element just real quickly of our collaboration, which is as foreigners in Hawaii, Dean and I, you know, from the continent, part of this project is addressing our obligation to help peel back the layers of the impacts that foreign presence have had here in Hawaii, just as you're referring to, Stephen, of, you know, the American culture on native cultures on the continent. So in telling the story, one, you know as Hina has said it's important for Hawaiians to tell this story as she has done in the Hawaiian language but what we're doing more broadly with this project is first uh, after the film is revealed as this is the story the question is why was it suppressed why was it, why were certain aspects of it erased and literally buried under buildings on Waikiki And so through this project we see it you're asking kind of what's the impact and how is it received what's well, it's been received, you know, well. So it's traveled to close to 100 film festivals around the world, many of which actually were um, children's festivals. So it's being seen as a mm. story that mm. young people can relate to, and as you said, kind of need to see. Right? We live in a broken world, a world that is made, unfortunately, unnecessarily challenging for young people in particular, simply to be who they are across, you know, race, gender. Sexuality, etc. So the film is being seen as a way to how do we tear some of those barriers down, and we're attempting to do that. And but it also speaks to the moment of healing that is desperately needed in the world, in this pandemic crisis in particular. And we're really fortunate that the Bishop uh, Museum here in Honolulu, which is essentially the the museum of record of Pacific, you know, culture and, and history. In the world. Um, it's located here in Honolulu, and they have invited us to work with them to develop an exhibition curated around the film and the Mo'olelo, the story in particular, that will launch here in the spring of 2022. That's going to explore all the themes we've been talking about today and what the cultural components are of all of those themes. So, you know, we think this will continue to have ripples in a lot of different ways, different storytelling techniques and ways of sharing the story. And, you know, we're just excited. It seems to be speaking to a moment, you know, in the world where um, people need to figure out how we can come together over all this stuff.
0: I really do think there is a moment. I mean, when you talked about the reasons why, I mean, I think we can guess the reasons why. I mean, it's colonial. It's about power. It's about suppression and domination and extraction of what you want that the other people are sitting on that they may not be treating the same way, whether that's their land or the resources underneath it, or simply to take them as labor, whatever that has been done historically. I feel like there is a moment right now where people are peeling back those layers and reclaiming themselves. And I think this is a a great example of it.
1: Very much so. And I hope that the scaffolding and the building will continue. Everyone has their moment in time where they may have that epiphany, they may, feel the light of uh, uh, the spark that's ignited beneath them to, to get them going on to their next level. And I could probably pinpoint to you all the, you know, well, many of the different moments where I had yet another um, epiphany, another light bulb that went on. Um, but for others out there who have not yet gotten started, I hope that maybe this will help to um, give them that start and if it did then all the time and the work that was spent was worth it there's no amount of money that could you know that could compensate for that kind of inspiration
0: absolutely absolutely i think that's a perfect place to end our conversation i could go on but i think we've got we've hit our limit i want to thank you both for your insights your 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 openness and 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 sharing this project with us
2: mahalo
1: thank you so much for having us